Welcome back to another primo episode of Fire and Water Records, the music anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and this is the eighth edition of Soundtrack Selections, the show that is all the rage on TikTok, I assume. This is the show where my guest and I each bring several of our favorite songs that appeared on movie soundtracks and discuss the song's place in the films and what we like about them. This time, my guest is the host of Pop Culture Affidavit and several other podcasts on the Two True Freaks Network. This is actually his second appearance on Fire and Water Records. He previously appeared talking about Billy Joel with Rob Kelly. Listeners, please welcome Mr. Tom Panarese. What's up, Tom? Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, I mean, as well as can be under the circumstances. That, yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is the, uh, whenever you ask somebody, how are you doing? They're like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Same as yeah. usual, asterisk. And it's just yeah. understood. Everybody knows what that footnote refers to. I, I'm glad that we're at least doing this over Skype and therefore there's no video involved. Not that <laughs> not that you don't have an adorable face, but I've been on so many Zoom meetings over the last couple of weeks that I'm so tired of looking myself at myself on a webcam. I'm like, oh, I could just... <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I don't have to dress up. Usually, I usually wear a tux when I t- when I Skype with people, and I just mm. haven't lately. I haven't had the energy. Yeah, full full <laughs> black tie. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, kind of the same question that everybody gets at the start of one of these episodes. Uh, you wanted to be on the show, so I ask, what was your criteria? What what made you select <clears throat> these songs in particular that you wanted to talk about? Um, I. So I've done an episode like this. I did it back in like 2015, 2016. It was episode 58 of Pop Culture Affidavit. Now, I didn't give it the amount of analysis that like you and your guests give. I just kind of like did like a lazy playlist episode where I did a bunch of movie songs. Um, but I, I've been listening to the to the other episodes. Um, and, and as of this recording, you put out five of them. And I was like, as I'm going through it, I'm like, I think I was like halfway through episode two. And I was like, oh, I want to be on this show because I just it's soundtracks are something that um, I really grew up listening to because growing up in the 80s and then coming of age in the 90s, it was kind of the golden age of the rock pop soundtrack that mm-hmm. comes along with a movie. And so I have several I have soundtracks from movies that tanked. <laughs> And yet people remember – so in some cases, people that remember the soundtrack more than they remembered the movie, um, at least for a time. Like, you know, like stuff like Singles and Empire Records. I mean, both movies I absolutely love. But, you know, the the soundtracks were more successful than than the film. And then I have like random soundtracks for um, The Last Action Hero because there was like (laughs) – like some live I think I don't know why I bought it I honestly don't it was I think it was one of my Columbia House free CDs or something <laughs> sure, you know, or whatever but but you know so like I, I just listened to a lot of soundtracks but I was thinking to myself like I've been listening to soundtracks since I was like a kid because you know I had I had the I had like four or five tapes before you know you really discover music you still had a few tapes that weren't just like you know it's 
like mouser size mm-hmm. Disney or, or, or whatever, like, you know, star Wars tape or record you have. And I have a ton of Sesame street records, but, but like, I remember I had, of course the required copies that everybody from our generation has of both thriller and born in the USA. Yep. And, um, but I had the soundtracks to top gun, mm-hmm. the karate kid part two <laughs> footloose and, the Stallone movie over the top. <laughs> and I used to play those over and over and over. So I've been listening to soundtracks since I was like a little kid, especially the Top Gun soundtrack. Uh, so I just, I just went for, for songs for movies that I hadn't already used on that episode and that hadn't appeared on any of your episodes so far. Which eliminated – so basically I went through – made a gargantuan list actually <laughs> and I just started crossing – things off once i came across them on episodes and i was like all right which ones do i really really like you know which ones would i really really like to talk about and they had to be a movie that i had watched and liked and that i first associated with the movie so um there's an awesome pat benatar song out there called invincible that is from the legend of billy jean mm-hmm. a movie that i didn't see until years after i knew the song you know so that that didn't qualify um you know fair is fair but you know um but it also had to be a song that's really really hard to separate from the film it didn't have to be exclusively for the film you know like it could have come from it could have been like you know like tiny dancer and almost famous like you know tiny right. dancer had been around since the 70s but like now it's it's hard to separate from that moment in the film so so that was kind of the thing and then what i did was i just ordered these um in order of appearance in the movie like you know my first one will be from the beginning of a movie and my last one was from the the end credits so i was particular but you know and 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 i like i said i chose a movie that i that i liked too you know so I mean, I think I've seen Flashdance once, even though I like Maniac, you know, like, so it was like, okay, I got to rule that out. So I was, yeah. you know, and it was a nice distraction too from just a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the, the work crap that's been going <laughs> on. So, so that, that was one of the things I loved about it. This, this show is by a wide margin, my favorite podcast to prep for. <laughs> and that is no that is no offense to any you know Batman or DC horror comic whatever that I've had to read like recently, but it's just I I just love revisiting some of these songs and you and I I think we're we're only a couple of years apart and like every time mm-hmm. I hear you and I hear you talking about your teenage years or like the the music and the pop culture things that inform you I was like yep. I was there, or that's very familiar. I was like, we started reading comics at almost the same time. Yeah, a lot of our music true. and TV shows are are just are, are very similar. Um, so yeah, I mean, like that was uh, that, uh, like m- probably most of my early CDs. Uh, I, I would say a good chunk of them were soundtracks to movies mm-hmm. and things like that. Before I really, before I keyed in, and, and part of that was just having uh, an older brother and a dad who were both really, really into music and had dedicated artists, so I had access mm. to tons of music. Like if I wanted to hear, you know, Van Halen or Guns N' Roses or Smashing Pumpkins, I had my brother's collection pretty readily available to me Uh, before I went out and bought those things on my own. I would do that later. But the things that I was collecting that I was amassing for a long time, most of them were soundtracks. And some of them were the classics that we still listen to. And some of them was like, why the hell did I have that? It's still one of those questions. And I also think something, maybe there was something about our age and growing up when we did. I I mean, if I can bring it back to the comic book comparison, it was Mm -hmm. sort of like the team book. It was like, you know, you know, you might really like Green Lantern and Flash and Batman, but you only have enough money to get one comic a month. 
are you going to pick one of those three or are you going to pick an issue of Justice League of America, which has all three? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it was sort of something like that. So, yeah, the soundtracks and compilation albums were a way of diversifying your field and sampling so many other artists, genres, everything. Um, yeah. And, and, and you could you there was an instant emotional resonance with them because of what they did in the movie. Yeah. And we saw so many movies. Mm hmm in that era that had montages that had songs in the movie that that like not that not that you i don't know i have like this it's going to come off as really really arrogant i think i have a really good instinct that if i were the person put in charge of inserting a song into a movie i'd nail it quite a bit because i've seen so many of these movies (laughs) that you know, that like I, uh, so, so that's something else. It's like, you know, I, I, I made a lot of mixtapes back in high school and college. Many of them were terrible because <laughs> yeah. some of them are still in my car because I have my wife's old car, but some of them were t- pretty damn good. <laughs> so I still love doing the whole playlist thing and associating with something or whatever. And, you know, and, and the few pieces of fiction I've written, I you know I can hear a certain song in the background or whatever so like I still I st- and I love that about about a good soundtrack especially a good song from a movie. Yeah. Yeah, I gosh, I mean I could do a whole other episode just on the mixtapes and eventually the mixed CDs that I would make and curate and everything over time but that, oh, would, <laughs> that would take us God. quite, you know, quite a 90 think- minute tangent. I think the reason you love doing this show and the reason I love listening to this um, and people look like coming on is that we basically get to play championship vinyl. <laughs> we get to be we get to play high fidelity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And none of us is as none of us is as much of a um, can I curse on this show? Absolutely, please. Okay, do. none of us is as much of an asshole as Barry. Oh, that's so. not even the curse word I thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have I had have I done a song from High Fidelity yet? I don't know. I did put um, – we gave up – I got married in 2003, so we were doing mix CDs as favors back then. And I did put I would believe I will fall in love with you yeah. and it will be forever oh, yeah. on that CD. Yeah, that was a good one too. Yeah. yeah. Ah, man. <laughs> I wonder uh, if I get the chance to – maybe I'll break out the beta band song that he plays <sighs> in the middle. I will now f- sell five copies of the three EPs by the beta <laughs> band. It's like, do it, do it. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Okay. Yeah. So we got to get into the list because the people yes. came to hear the music, not us. So, um, all right. Kick us off. What is the first song for soundtrack selections this volume? Yeah. This is a song that was on a, uh, one of the last couple episodes. I, it was the movie that was on one of the last couple episodes I listened to, but, uh, but I think it might have been Neil used yep. it. Uh, but he used, uh, Tender Years from Eddie and the Cruisers. I am choosing the song that opens Eddie and the Cruisers, and that is On the Dark Side by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. Oh, 
So if you, I, I won't get too much into the plot of the movie because um, if you've been listening, you you know a little bit about it. Eddie and the Cruisers was one of these movies that tanked at the box office. It became a cult hit uh, to the point where, like, when it hit its 30th anniversary a number of years ago, the Washington Post did like this cover story in the arts section about like why this is such a huge cult film, and it was it was just the HBO and the syndicated TV effect. It was just rerun all the time. I saw it like on Channel Nine when I was like. Younger, I, I think I watched most of it, and then I remember renting it from the video store. It's it's a really good movie. Um, it's it's one of those like you know hidden gems, and the the idea is that you know you have this very Springsteen and the E Street Band esque type of kids from Jersey band playing this rock music, and and this song is very Springsteen, um, especially like those very rock tracks on the river that um, are like Sherry Darling and Crush on You and Two Hearts, like, you know, those really fast paced, like, you know, that, that sound like a garage band. And um, even, even this, like the, the, the instrumentation, everything, it's just, you know, it's very, you know, your bass, your guitar, your piano, your, whatever. Um, And, and the thing I noticed as I was listening to it, and I've listened to it many, many times over the years is that this does sound, um, if Cafferty was doing this on purpose, like a bunch of like, high school or college kids who have a band and they're playing in a crappy bar. You know, it does not sound like slickly produced. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it feels very, uh, it feels very, very authentic. And, and like I said, yeah, they're kind of aping, they're kind of aping Bruce here, but I mean that piano that starts this song and it opens things up and it's just, it's, it's so good. And it becomes the hit for the band to the point where toward the end of the movie, there's a recording their second album. And Eddie wants to do this whole experimental thing that is way more like, I don't know, like if the Beatles walked into a studio in 1965 and said, we're going to do Sgt. Pepper, you know, before they had done Revolver and whatever. And uh, and the studio turns around or the the record company turns around. It's like, we can't sell this. And Eddie gets pissed off. He walks out and you hear Sal, who is kind of (laughs) Sal's kind of the, the just annoying little weaselly guy to the group. And you hear say, Eddie, they want on the dark side, you know, like he's that's basically what he's saying over and over. And you like totally understand it because this is a song that like is just the hit. And um, and and I will I cannot listen to the song without seeing like Michael Pere and Tom Berenger and just the whole the whole aesthetic of this movie. Yeah, I talked about this movie with my brother on the previous episode that you mentioned. So I don't have a lot to add to what you said mm-hmm. other than. Yeah. And I think I did mention this on that episode uh, on an older computer that has since gone deceased. I don't think I'll be able to revive it. Uh, I did have a curated playlist of not Bruce Springsteen songs, but songs that reminded me of Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) I don't even know why I did that. Uh, But I made that playlist and it featured this song on it because this sounds like a cross between early Bruce Springsteen and early 80s John Cougar Mellencamp. I Mm -hmm. I really hear shades of both of those artists Mm -hmm. in this song. I I do love some 80s John Cougar Mellencamp myself. Yeah, it, it definitely hits that sweet spot. Yeah. All right, moving on to the next song, we have my first selection, and you can actually take your pick from what movie you want this to be from, because it comes from two, and I've included both movies because the song kind of has two different lives for me that come from these two different movies, and the song is Then He Kissed Me by The Crystals.
All right, this song originated back in 1963. Uh, the first time I heard it, though, was in the opening to Adventures in Babysitting in 1987. <laughs> um, and as I was thinking, I remember as a kid, there were... I didn't. I didn't have a babysitter very often. Uh, just my parents just didn't go out that much or some whatever. Um, but there were a couple of nights when I remember uh, a friend of mine who was my age who lived down the street. He, he had an older sister, and she would come over and babysit me like a few times. And I distinctly remember watching two different movies when she was babysitting me. And one was Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And it you know for the life of me it took me a long time to figure out why she was cracking up during magic dance when she was looking at the bulge in David Bowie's pants. I couldn't figure <laughs> out why she thought that song, that scene was funny. Um, eventually, I did. Uh, the other movie that I remember watching was Adventures in Babysitting, uh, and this plays during the beginning when Elizabeth Shue is getting dressed for her date uh, with Bradley Whitford, and I had a huge crush on Elizabeth Shue. I thought she was uh, gorgeous to die for in this. Um, uh, so th- I mean just. To, to have the movie start with this catchy pop classical song uh, and her, you know, getting dressed and singing to me, I, I thought she was beautiful. So I just, I fixated on this opening scene and I would make my producer play this again and again. And I would just rewind <laughs> it and watch this opening over and over. Eventually I saw the rest of the movie now. Uh, fun fact, <laughs> the adventures in babysitting was where I first uh, learned about the Marvel character Thor. Uh, no, that was my intro to character Thor. I never knew who he was, or never saw that comic until until later. I mean, I did, wasn't getting into Marvel comics until the nineties. So mm-hmm. then, uh, years uh, probably, it, I probably it wasn't until I think the late nineties actually that I saw the movie Goodfellas, uh, and this is used terrifically well in one of Martin Scorsese's best scenes, best moments, uh, I, I, I would at least say from the decade, from the 80s, mm-hmm. um, if not his whole career. Uh, and this is the scene in Goodfellas when Ray Liotta's character, Henry, takes Lorraine Bracco on their first date, and we see them getting out of the car in his one long continuous shot. You know, I mean... Aaron, it's a tracking shot. It's the tracking yeah. shot. And Aaron Sorkin and Tommy Schlamme would eventually make this, you know, just every other Wednesday. They would do this <laughs> on the West Wing and, and whatever <laughs> show they were producing. But this was, this was the thing. It was a long two and a half to three minute tracking shot that goes across a street down a set of stairs into the back basement of this restaurant through the kitchen past multiple characters all these back hallways until you get into mm-hmm. the restaurant and the maitre d grabs a table and sets it up for these kids and and the whole thing and while it's playing you just get this classic song by by the crystals and um who's the killer who wrote the who Wrote and produced a song. Why can I not think of his name? Phil Spector. Phil Spector. Thank well, this you. This is a Phil Spector song, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He he wrote and produced it, and yeah. and Ronnie Spector, I think, was the singer. And, and yeah, it's just it's a great, funny song, and it, it, I love the way that moment punctuates with you know once they're the couple are sitting together and and she's blown away by you know the clout that this uh-huh. young guy has to bring her through this world. I mean, this is this is as good a seduction scene as any that you would see that was more overtly sexual because he's taking her through these back rooms that she would never get into and he's glad handing people 20 50 bills just for like saying hi to him and at the end she's like so what do you do and he goes oh i'm in construction and she <laughs> takes his hands kind of tenderly she's like these don't feel like you're in construction and he's like well i'm a union delegate and he just passes it off like he's got the answer for it and everything and brilliant and between these two movies i mean like i mean so masterfully used use this mm-hmm. song and it's just a great pop tune even if it wasn't in these movies i would love this song yeah um you mentioned labyrinth and all i could think of is is jennifer Connolly, 
who there there are certain moments in your childhood where you realize that your sexual identity is what it is. And Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth was one of them. And then I think her appearance and career opportunities eventually cemented that. Anyway, if, if those if those hadn't already done it for me, it was definitely Mulholland Falls that uh, cemented it. When you see a lot more of her. Uh, God, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Anyway, uh, before before I get to this, um, the tracking shot in Goodfellas, I have to say that Doug – give credit to Doug Lyman for his reference to that tracking shot in Swingers because mm. um, the scene begins with them sitting around a table at a restaurant. It's doing that patented Scorsese um, which they, John Wells used to use on ER all the time, the rotate around the room, yep. the different people talking thing. And they're, the conversation they're having is they're comparing Tarantino to Scorsese. And there's one of them is saying how much Tarantino rips off Scorsese and John Favreau's character is like, well, everybody rips off. They're all like, everybody rips off everybody. And they walk out of the diner to aping the opening shot, the walking down the street, the let's get to work shot from Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. And they go into the club they're going to, and he apes the tracking shot from Goodfellas <laughs> after this great argument. They had. It's a great meta illusion. <laughs> the end of that particular night, if I'm if I'm remembering the the sequence of events of singles, uh, uh, singles, uh, swingers correctly, the end of that night, because you know in, in in Goodfellas he's essentially seducing Lorraine Bracco, who's like one of the best parts of that movie. She yes. is so amazing in that movie, and. Um, <laughs> The end of that night in Swingers ends with the really, really uncomfortable answering machine scene because he got the number from the girl and then he's calling her. So it's just it's it's so so I I, when I was I had watched Goodfellas about a week and a half ago or a week ago and I was watching that scene and 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 it had and it, I had totally forgotten that that's what Doug Lyman did in Swingers so I just wanted to bring that up because I was like oh wow yeah um the funny thing about this song is cuz I've known this song for for 30 35 years right mm-hmm. and the reason I knew it the first time I ever heard it was it was used in the trailer for the Molly Ringwald Robert Downey Jr movie The Pickup Artist because okay. I saw that trailer about a billion times because it was on the VHS for I think it was Predator. Like it was on a okay. CBS Fox VHS and they used to have trailers before mm-hmm. you know the movies. I remember, yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty it was either Predator or another movie, but it was probably Predator. And I used to either fa- sometimes I would actually watch it through because I just was too lazy to hit fast forward, but usually I'd fast forward <laughs> through it. And I always remember hearing the song and then he kissed me. So when you mentioned this and I heard it from Goodfellas, I thought of the trailer for the pickup artist. Which is probably I've never seen. It's probably a terrible movie. But <laughs> And I'm sure it's the perfect movie to pre- to advertise right before Predator. Like yeah. those are definitely it's like, know, it's like the pickup artist and I remember like the other one on the on the video was uh, was Revenge of the Nerds 2 or something so like that. The Venn diagram for those target audiences is yeah. really tight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I, I love I love the song, and I hate to say because, yeah, Phil Spector <laughs> Phil Spector also cut a hell of a Christmas album, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's teeny pop stuff, but it has this timelessness that transcends stuff like Frankie Lyman or or some of the other stuff from like the fifties that is like so disposable. It's, it's the new kids on the block of its day. Mm -hmm. Um, but this, I don't know, this has, this is a 50 something year old song that still just is, is one of those perfect three minutes or so that, that you, 
that yeah. somebody like Spectre had the talent to produce. Yeah. Almost 60 years old at this point, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. God, we're old. Yeah, yeah. No, and I just I had to I had to include this one because for one thing, I mean everything that you said, I, as a just as a song, I enjoy it and I will listen mm-hmm. to this without needing any kind of provocation. I enjoy it. Yeah. But yeah, just because for about a decade, you know, the eighties and early nineties, like I heard the song and I just saw those first couple of minutes of Adventures in Babysitting, Babysitting. And, the <laughs> and like this was the this was the song that I associated with that. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw Goodfellas, which again I don't think I saw it until ninety seven, ninety eight, maybe. Um, and just watching it, and I was like, oh, the song, oh, oh, I know that, oh, he's going to ruin the song for me. No, no, he's not. No, he's not ruining the song for me. I was like, whoa, this is a great shot. And and so, yeah, he totally, like, stole the song and reinvented it and gave it a new purpose for me. So Nice, nice. So, and I really, really hope Martin Scorsese directs a Marvel movie next. So, <laughs> Well, you know, he loves them so much. Definitely within his wheelhouse. All right, let's move on to the next song in our selection. What do you got for us? I have the song Clerks from the movie of the same name by Love Among Freaks. There's a little bit of background on the band because this is uh, one of those alternative bands that appeared on soundtrack. That this is probably one of the only movie the songs they ever heard. They have another song in this uh, movie soundtrack. Uh, they sang the song Berserker, mm-hmm. which is in a famous <laughs> scene. Would you like some making <laughs> fuck? Did he just say making fuck? You know. Um, but Love Among Freaks was an independent and alternative band out of New Jersey, out of the Leonardo. Red Bank area where Kevin Smith was living and and working at the time when he made Clerks and actually they and granted I got this off of like their Wikipedia page so you know just take that as a source as you will but from what I understand he knew them before the movie got made and picked up by Miramax like the the like the guys from the band used to come to the store all the time mm-hmm. you know like that sort of thing so mm-hmm. they knew each other they were locals. And um, they had actually recorded the song an original for the original cut of the film, unlike you know some mono you know crappy track recording. So when when the song when the movie screened at like uh, festivals and you know to, to buyers, this, the, it was always in the opening credits of the movie. And then when the movie got picked up, uh, Miramax famously paid more for the music rights to the songs and the soundtrack and for the soundtrack than they actually than it cost Kevin Smith to make the movie. Um, Love Among Freaks re-recorded the song for the for what you get on the soundtrack. The Clerks soundtrack, by the way, if you can track it down, is really really good. It has a the studio version of um, 
Uh, it's an Allison Chain song. Uh, Got me wrong. Yeah, it has some it has some other. It has a really really good cover of Go Your Own Way. Um, it's 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 just some really really good independent alternative grungy stuff from the early '90s. Um, and and this song plays over the opening credits. Now, like the the movie opens with Dante falling out of a closet and getting called into work, and then you hear the initial guitar chord and beats of the song and you see the title of the movie and it, it's hard to separate the two for me it's 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 such a great and the opening montage of this while the song plays is him going to work walking up to the locks of the store seeing that someone's jammed gum in them having to make that sign that says i assure you were open which is a running bit through the entire movie people walking going you're open you're open like and he has to write the sign in shoe polish. In shoe polish. What smells like shoe polish? And, and you know, of course, like, he spends the entire movie going, I'm not even supposed to be here today. And But it's that, like, <laughs> Brian O'Halloran does the whole, like, I'm so annoyed that I have to go into work by not even saying a line up until the time he sits down behind the counter with this sort of just look in his face like, oh, God, I get it. He's trudging in. And I think we've all been there no matter what job we're working. I think Michael Bailey is still there. I'm pretty <laughs> sure every day of his life is basically Dante's day from Christmas. Yeah, and I just said I love it because it's 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 so early 90s and it's so it's so indie alternative without being overproduced and polished. Um, and it's uh, and, and like I said, it, it, for a movie like Clerks, which is literally gritty in terms of the way it was shot you know we're not talking like you know <laughs> what we talk about when we talk about grim and gritty this isn't a frank miller comic or a Zack snyder film it's literally like a twenty-two thousand or twenty-four thousand dollar shot movie in black and white and and it 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 matches up so well so when i hear this come on with when, when my ipods on shuffle or whatever i'm like you know yeah i can see this scene play over and over so it's, it's a great great opening track to a movie <laughs> yeah, for listeners, uh, you, you should know by now that this is um, this is the first of three sort of crossover songs <laughs> for this episode uh, and and soundtrack selection six. Because if you go back, you'll remember that Clinton Robinson did his whole his whole uh, theme was based on the Kevin Smith movies, and mm. somehow never picked one from the movie Clerks. Um, <laughs> but the fun fact for me was I was getting Clinton's list of songs and Tom's list of songs right around the same time. So I was just looking at them. I was going, oh, okay, nice, nice. All right, we can do this. And, and yeah, I, I've got nothing to add other than, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I love the song. Like as, as soon as you kind of mentioned it, I was like, okay, I hear the bomb, 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 bomb. But like just like the, the intro and everything. How it starts Yeah. Uh, all right, so that is going to segue to uh, the next song, and I sort of teased this back in episode six when I was talking with Clinton when I said my first go, the first filmmaker that I was going to use, uh, I, because I ended up using Quentin Tarantino, um, and instead at first I was going to do Cameron Crowe, uh, and I said somebody else poached <laughs> uh, one of the Cameron Crowe songs that I was going to use, and uh, hold on for five minutes to, to hear that song. Um, but one of the songs that was on my list that I boarded uh, was from a Cameron Crowe script. He did not actually make the movie, uh, but we were talking about his his first feature, which is Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and the song mm-hmm. is Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown. But just to look at that girl with the lights coming up in her eyes. She's got to be somebody's Somebody's baby. All the guys on the corner stand back and let her walk on by. 
so yeah, I, I had planned to use this on my uh, Cameron Crow theme, uh, but when you took one of the other songs, I was like, you know, I'm, I still want to talk about this song. Uh, and part of the reason was it was not until I was prepping for these podcasts that I realized this song originated with the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I I always for, for some reason I just assumed that it was a Jackson Brown song that it probably went back to like the late seventies or something. It was probably on uh, one of his albums. You know, um, I, don't, I don't even remember. But like running on empty. Or well, like yeah, yeah. I mean, because at the time, I mean, I knew like the only two Jackson Brown CDs that I had were Running on Empty and the Next Voice You Hear, which was like the best of collection. Mm. But yeah, so when I was actually looking it up, I was like, okay, where did the song actually come from? I was like, whoa, this song was written for. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I never kind of thought... And then, like, a light bulb went off because then all of a sudden I was like, okay, I've always really, really liked this song, but it must have been just sort of superficially because as soon as I made that connection, he is writing the song about the characters in the movie. I was like, yeah. this is this is the theme for uh, Stacy and Mark. Stacy is Jennifer Jason Lee's character who is this young, I think, sophomore at the beginning, and she's a virgin. She desperately wants a boyfriend. She wants to have a sexual experience. She kind of like is looking for this as a way of a rite of passage and growing up. And at the same time, she's oblivious to the fact that there is a guy who wants her, who works across the mm, hall from yeah. her, who is in love oh, with her. Mark Ratner. Mark Ratner, yeah. Who, oh. who, would, who is kind of the guy that we have all felt like we have been there before. We are all Mark Ratner. We are all Mark Ratner. Ratner. We, are, we are the one guy who's like, you know, if she would just notice me, I would treat her so well. I would be the one guy who's not an asshole to her, who doesn't mm-hmm. take advantage of her, who doesn't get her pregnant and then refuse to pay for the abortion and everything like that. Yeah, it's a moan, you little yeah. Um, but of course she doesn't notice him like she she's oblivious she so wants a boyfriend and doesn't see the guy right in front of her face and it's like yeah "Yeah, we've all kind of we've been there and of course that whole kind of persona took a dark you know dark turn with sort of the incel movement in in the last couple of years Uh, and maybe it predates that I don't know I've just been more aware of it lately but yeah it seems like all like all the Mark Ratners grew up and got very very angry and spiteful and violent um, but <laughs> for the purposes of Fast Times at Ridgemont High and this song, it's really sweet and it's a beautiful, touching song, and and I love it. And uh, Jackson Brown again, like I only knew like two two of his albums. Of course, one of them was like a best of, but I mm. always thought he was just a, a phenomenal talent. But for some reason, never really got invested to go out and and listen to more of him than just the hits, basically. Yeah, I have a. Um, I had heard a few of his songs because I used to listen to a lot of classic rock radio back mm. in the. So I heard. I knew this before I saw Fast Times at Bridgemont High, and um, then Running on Empties. The I actually have a copy of that album on vinyl because I found it at a Goodwill store a number mm. of years ago for fifty cents. So I was like, yeah, it's mine. It's a, that's a great album, and I have a greatest hit CD. I, I love like the the end of that album when it, he does the the holdout and then yeah. into his cover of Stay. That, yeah. That's a great like one-two punch. Yeah. My local rock radio, classic rock station would play that all the way through. So either uh, the DJ had to go to the bathroom, <laughs> or there was some cocaine that needed to be snorted. You know, um, or they just but, realized uh, you don't separate those two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, or or they did try to separate it once. They got a few angry phone calls. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the you're right about the song. It's it's this beautiful song, and it was a big hit for him too. This was, uh, and and I covered this on Pop Culture Affidavit. The, not the song, but the movie years ago. Um, it's like episode 47 or 48 or something. Uh, Todd Liebenau from Forgotten Filmcast and I did this. But the funny thing is, is it's 
it is. It's this beautiful song, and it does talk. You talk about like Mark Ratner and her, and the whole thing for the two of them through the movie because it's really, really innocent, juxtaposed to her actual two relationships as they are one with Mike Damone and the other one with this like really skeezy 20 something salesman named Ron Johnson. He's like a stereo salesman guy who like flirts with her at the pizza place. And the two of the times they play this in the movie are during these two sex scenes. So it's, it's hard for me to separate this from Jennifer Jason Lee's tits, but (laughs) So with the scene with Damone the second time, she has sex with Damone in the pool shed at her house. And uh, this is where she ends up getting pregnant and, and um, et cetera. But and, and it's it's actually a really, really funny way to, to incorporate it in the movie because they're doing it. And when he and, and it, he lasts like 10 seconds. Um, and when he when he comes, they stop the song and they like kind of end with the vocal. And it's it's when Brown hits this high note like tonight. And it's like almost like almost like a record scratch. The other time is when she has sex with the creepy stereo salesman. They, they go to the point, which is like a dugout on a little league field. And you could tell how uncomfortable she is by all this physically and emotionally. Like they, they have a few really great point of view shots from her point of view where she's reading the graffiti on the, on the dugout walls. And the way he is doing it to her, he's like doing this thing where he arches his back and like cranes his neck up and his eyes are closed. Like, I don't know, like he's some sort of 70s soft rock god, and he's like, you know, I'm making love to you. It's 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 an image I can't get out of my head from this fucking movie. It reminds me of uh, when David's first transformation in American Werewolf in London. (laughs) (laughs) He he does kind of have a David Naughton look to him, this guy too. (laughs) So I think that's part of it. But no, and and I do love this song. I mean, aside from that, but it it is really really well used in the movie, and uh, you know. Um, credit to Crow, but also Amy Heckerling, yeah. who directed it, because it's it's one of the fat for a movie that is coming up on um, almost forty years. It still holds up mm-hmm. yeah. really, really well. Yeah. All right, and then that transitions us to uh, uh, to uh, Cameron Crowe's next film. Yes, <laughs> and, um, and the one that you poached from my list. The re- the reason that I didn't do Cameron Crowe on my la- on episode six. So yeah, take it away. So this is this is from his di- directorial debut because he had Fast Times. He had a 1985 movie called The Wildlife with Eric Stoltz. That's never going to see the light of day because there's too many Van Halen songs in it or something, and they can't get the rights to those. Uh, this is from Say Anything, and if you're gonna talk about a song that's on in Say Anything, it is In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. And this- my 
Okay, everybody knows the main image this is associated with. It is John Cusack holding up a boombox. It's on literally on the poster for the movie because I have the poster for the movie. Um, it, this is one of my this is one of my top five all time Desert Island favorite films, non Star Wars category, uh, and it actually appears twice in the movie. And if you if you understand the context of the first time it appears, when it appears in the famous boombox scene, you understand why he's playing the song. When him and Diane, he, the, the, the the movie is about like you know, Cusack plays Lloyd Dobler, who's just kind of he's not an asshole. He's just, just kind of like one of those guys who kind of just existed at your high school. You know, he was pretty cool. He had a lot of friends. Everybody knew him, but he wasn't like, you know, he was not, um, he's not like an eighties. He's not a Billy Zabka character. Um, he's not Judd Nelson in the breakfast club. So he's not a thug. He's just, he's just Lloyd, you know? And, and, and so he, in the very beginning of the movie, he asks out Diane court, who's played by Ioni sky, who is the valedictorian. And she is gorgeous. Um, I think Lily Taylor's line is she's a brain trapped in the body of a game show hostess. <laughs> and he takes her to this graduation party, which is probably the most the best graduation party ever shot in any movie ever. Even beats out Can't Hardly Wait. And that's saying a lot because I love that movie. Yeah, me too. I had that soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and they go they start dating. And they they really fall for each other, like genuinely fall for each other. And they finally consummate their relationship they're, they're, uh, this takes place in Seattle and they're parked out near the beach in the back of his car and as they're huddled under the blankets at the back seat um, the song's on the radio and that scene is like it's they've either finished or whatever and he she, she points out that he's shaking and to comfort him she's like listen to the song that's a really you know beautiful song and it's this really really tender moment between the two of them well, fast forward about half an hour later or whatever in the movie time, she breaks up with him. And she breaks up with him because her dad's under investigation by the IRS. John Mahoney plays her father and is just brilliant in this movie. If, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie, go write this movie. Um, and, and he basically – it's this weird dynamic where he basically forces her to choose between him and her boyfriend. And she chooses her father. So she breaks up with him and Lloyd has no idea why. And he keeps calling her and calling her and calling her. And um, so the scene is him in a park, not on her lawn, but like in a park somewhere, because you can see like the path and picnic tables behind him, holding up a boombox that is blasting this Peter Gabriel song that was playing. And it carries enough that she can hear it. And it starts in her bedroom. She's just laying in her bedroom. She's frustrated with all that's going on. And she you can hear it off in the distance. And it's almost like we pan from her bedroom to him and he's like holding it up and he's playing it and he hoists it higher and it just it plays enough and then we cut to a scene where she's dealing with the the irs and her father and it's it's one of the most iconic movies uh, uh, moments in in like 80s teen movies and this is one of those songs that i may have heard it before i saw say anything but i cannot hear this without seeing this movie and I've probably rambled on way too much but it's this beautiful haunting song and um, it's almost like on a with or without you sort of level I mean that's how good this song is coming back to something that you said earlier the first time I heard this song was not in this movie 
And uh-huh. it was not on the Peter Gabriel album So, which I eventually bought because of this movie. After yeah. The first time I heard this song, I swear it was in the trailer for the Johnny Depp movie Benny, Benny June. June. Yes, yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> and that's where I saw it. And I was like, ah, oh, I like this song. Where is what is this? And I just I didn't have Google. But uh I, I love the song and then yeah, this was this was such a I, when I was um when I was in high school, when I was a, you know a sophomore, kind of going out with this girl who was a senior, and I mentioned this on one of the earlier episodes, like episode three. This was one of the girls that uh, I, I went with. Actually, I think that I saw. Can't hardly wait with. Um, when we were kind of like still in the sort of flirtatious stage, she said that I reminded her of John Cusack. And I was like, oh, really? And I was kind of like thinking, I was like, oh, John Cusack, you, you know, from, I was like, you know, from like uh, Gross Point Blank or something like that. I was like, because that had come out at the time. I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. And she's like, no, from the movie Better Off Dead. And I was like, oh. I love that movie. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I was like, oh, okay. I was like, all right. Um, so, so this one, when I saw this, this kind of had a, uh, the, this struck a chord with me because of, because of her and everything like that. And when I, when I saw this and, and the song and yeah, everything you're right. Like it, it is that moment that everybody knows. If you've heard, if you've heard of say anything, if you've seen it, you know, that shot that you described with John Cusack yeah. in the trench coat, holding the boom box up, playing the song. Um, it is, it is a scene that apparently has trapped and haunted both John Cusack and <laughs> Peter Gabriel throughout their lives. They have talked about it with Ement that everybody talks to them about that moment. And they're kind of like mad at Cameron Crowe because of it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you're right. But it, it does like it, that's that moment is so informed and it, it's validated. It's not just because I think I think Cameron Crowe is very very good at capturing moments of romanticism and and whimsy and sentimentality that feel cool and authentic. And mm-hmm. sometimes he does it in a way that's that's genuine and it's and it's important to the story. Like with his earlier stuff, I think Say Anything and Singles and yeah. Almost Famous. And then I think he gets to that point, like with Vanilla Sky, which is a movie that I, I can justify, and there's a lot about that movie I like. But I think it's kind of like I think he just had a collection of cool moments that he wanted to see and mm-hmm. wanted to write, and didn't really have the story that he mm-hmm. that, that deserved it. We don't talk about Elizabeth Town. <laughs> I was like, when you when you took say anything off my list, I was like, can I do Freebird from Elizabeth Town? I'd rather no. not. No, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'd rather not talk about that. God, um, but yeah, so this is yeah, gosh, it's just so good. I I was thinking about this movie again just since you brought it, and thinking about the story and the way you described Lloyd, and I'm like, talk about a Mary Sue type of character or Gary Stu <laughs> as Cameron Crowe's great. This is the guy that Lloyd has like he's just he is one of the he doesn't fall into any real category. He's not the jock, he's not the stoner, yeah. he's not the geek, he's not the rebel and everything. He's just sort of everybody likes him even though he doesn't really have to do anything. He's not committed to anything. He has no prospects for his future. And yet he asks out the girl that is way out of his league mm-hmm. and she says yes because of course this is the girl who doesn't realize how beautiful she is and they go to the party and they have fun and they fall in love and her father hates this guy but her father ends up in jail <laughs> so, like i can't when i think like like there are two moments like when i hear say anything i think of that shot of him with, and then i hear yeah. john mahoney going i'm incarcerated, I'm incarcerated lloyd, lloyd. <laughs> He's so, so and he's so damn good in that movie. Yes, yeah. Oh, so so that's like the two things. It's like like how like 
who who could have a life that good, that privileged, where you just like yeah. walk ass backwards into that like yeah. without being super rich? Yeah. You could just be like that effortlessly. Everything good happens to me. I got the girl that I want, and her disapproving father is in jail. So, yeah. Well, and, and then you have like there's there's two other moments. Well, the the moment with John Mahoney that's it's even better is the one where he gets his like all his credit cards keep getting rejected in the luggage <laughs> store, and just watching this guy like because they're like there's a decline code on your account. Like you know he's been you know the they the whole IRS plot's been going on the whole time yeah, yeah. and like he's so subtly you see him completely fall apart in that scene because he's just like he he knows in the back of his mind that it's over it's like this is the sign you know that that he that whatever denial he was in about this is now completely gone yet he saves face very well for this woman that he'd been flirting with and, and you know uh-huh. the clerk behind the counter and then later on there's a scene at the end with the very very last scene of the film with um Diane and Lloyd on the plane it's very Ben and Elaine in the back of the bus of the graduate where like you know they're waiting for the no smoking sign to ding because that's like when he tells her that like you know everything's going to be safe and and he has that that they have that great exchange where she says nobody thinks this is going to work do they and he says you just described every great success story which is one of my favorite lines of the movie but at the same time the look on their faces is very like they're not doubting it but it's just you know it is we're 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 off into the uncertain here, right? And they're both eight. They both just graduated high school, so it caps. It, it just like one moment can encapsulate that very very well. And like I said, it it is very reminiscent of the end of the graduate, where that lingers on them for a little bit longer than that. Where like the 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 end of that is like, oh crap, what did we just do? <laughs> so so yeah. All right, then. From there, we go to one of my top five Desert Island films, which is Beverly Hills Cop. And the song is Stir It Up by Patti LaBelle. I can't sit here while I go nowhere Chase my dreams through the polluted air Walking on a wire, running out of time There's no room in this so hard of mine This is just one of those songs that I like. If I am in a crappy mood, I play this song because this song just perks me up. Uh, it, it reminds me of the movie and how much I love it. It reminds me of like Eddie Murphy's laugh. Uh, and this song is used throughout the movie. It's used twice in the movie. Once as uh, Eddie Murphy's character Axel Foley is first coming, he leaves Detroit to investigate the murder of his friend. So he comes to Beverly Hills, uh, following these leads and where his friend was. 
And so this is like the, the montage shot of, you know, we've, we've been in Detroit for the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie mm-hmm. and it's dark and it's gritty. It, it's like 1984, you know, Detroit, just everything is, <laughs> everything is steel. Everything is crime ridden. It's covered in smoke. It's dark. It's just dingy and cut to this song picks up and everything is sunny and pastel colors, palm trees, mansions, beautiful women in sunglasses, smiling at it. people dressed like Michael Jackson, leather costumes, walking down the street. And it's just great. It's like in that laugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it also plays during the ending credits. And like, so I just, like on a, on a, just an oral aesthetic level. I just, I love the song. It's just a great, fun pop song. It, or it takes me back to this place. It makes me think of sunshine and, and the summer and just everything is going to be cool. And it's just, a, it's an instant pick me up. It makes me want to get up and move and not be in a bad mood anymore. If I was in a bad mood when I started listening to it. But the, the story that I love about this one is. The producers, when the movie was being made, they they were trying to put together the soundtrack. And it was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, I think, was the mm-hmm. other one. Yeah. Uh, and they were going together and they were getting picking up all these artists to use for the soundtrack. And it's got a great soundtrack. I'm sure other songs will show up, like Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters mm-hmm. and The Heat Is On. It was Glenn Fry. Glenn Fry. Yep, yep. Uh, so great songs that will probably show up on future episodes. But the thing is they wanted this song by Patti LaBelle, or they wanted a Patti LaBelle song. And she had just signed with a new record company, or record, and she was um, she was putting together like new songs, new recording new songs for, the, for a future album. And they heard this song. They're like, we love this song. We really want to use this in the movie. And the record company, I don't even remember which one it was, but they were like, no, we want New Attitude, her song New Attitude. That's the one we're mm-hmm. going to push as a single. You've got to use that one. They're like, we don't, that's not the song we want. Stir It Up feels right for Axel, for this character, the story. This is the one we want. And their, their record's going to be like, you can't have Patti LaBelle if you don't take this song. And I think it was Jerry Bruckheimer who was like, what if we do both? Can we have both? Like, we promise you, we'll have, like, stir, we'll have New Attitude on the soundtrack in the movie. Can we have Stir It Up as well? And the record company's like, yeah, sure, yeah, you can do both of them. So they made that agreement, and then New Attitude is featured in the movie, but it's buried in the scene <laughs> when Axel and Mikey are playing pool in like the first oh, okay. in, this, in this dark pool hall when he's like basically just giving the exposition of what he's been doing and what it will eventually get him killed. So it's playing in the background, it's like barely, on the radio. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. You barely hear it. Um, meanwhile, Stir It Up, they put in twice and make very prominently. But if you got the soundtrack album, it said featuring New Attitude by Patti LaBelle. It's on the cover of the soundtrack. Yeah. So, that was her big comeback hit, too. I mean, New Attitude was was huge yeah, for her well, Yeah, as it well. was a big one. That, that they were really pushing the hell out of it. But Bruckheimer and Simpson were like, that's not the song we want, but we'll take it if we have to. <laughs> so. God, Jerry Bruckheimer. Um yeah, this uh, the thing about this movie and this soundtrack and this song, it is so of its time, yet it so encapsulates 1984 mm-hmm. and the style and what movie soundtracks were becoming, because this is about a year or so after Flashdance and yeah. Footloose and stuff, that it doesn't feel dated it feels more like a time capsule. So mm-hmm. it, it endures really, really well. And yeah, I was listening and I, I hadn't heard this song at all very long time because i haven't seen beverly hills cop in a very long time or at least all the way through and um and i was trying to before i went back and like tried to just kind of google where it was in the movie i was trying to figure out like this isn't a montage this isn't a beverly hills montage and then all i did was google and the image that came up is him looking at the guy in the michael jackson leather suit and i'm like that's exactly (laughs) where this is 
it's the it's the eighties equivalent. You know, the only the only other song I can think of where you're running through Beverly Hills. And, it, and there's something really poppy going on is the opening theme to Beverly Hills 90210. But but uh yeah, exactly. But no, but really this you're you're completely right. And it is it is so slick and it's so eighties, but it works so well. She but she has the voice for it too. Yeah. Yeah. All right, where do we go from there? We go about um fifteen years later from a movie from nineteen ninety-nine. And um this may be the first rap song you've had on the show. I don't know in the – I've only listened to the first five episodes. I don't know if you've done anything <laughs> since. But this is, of course, not – this isn't from you know any of the actual good movies that feature rap songs. Although I think you might have had Lose Yourself. So Yeah, we had Lose Yourself. <laughs> this is the first rap song by a black artist. <laughs> and we, um, technically had, song. we had Jay's um, rap on episode six, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Noise, noise, noise. Smoking <laughs> weed, smoking <laughs> weed, doing coke, drinking beers. Um, no, this is from – this is from off. A space, and it is by the Ghetto Boys. It is damn. It feels good to be a gangster. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster ass nigga plays his cards right. A real gangster ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth. Cause real gangster ass niggas don't start fights. And niggas always got a hot cap, showing all his boys how we shot him. But real gangster ass niggas don't flex nuts. Cause real gangster ass niggas know they got him. And everything's cool in the mind of a gangster Cause gangsta-ass niggas think deep Up 365, yo, 24-7 Cause real gangsta-ass niggas don't sleep And all I gotta say to you Wanna be, wanna be cocksuckin' pussy pranksters Is when the fire dies down, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster <laughs> Now, before I even say, like, I, I bought this, I bought the CD about a year or two after seeing the movie, and the version of this song that's on film has been cleaned up a little bit, and you can tell if you actually listen to the song the version that's on the soundtrack because the version on the soundtrack uses the N word way more than <laughs> yeah. I expected it to. Yeah. Um, and and there's some other things like it is a vulgar song, but. <laughs> It's hard to separate it from this movie for anybody who's seen it. Uh, Office Space famously tanked at the box office as well, but it, it is one of the cult films of the late 90s because oh, yeah. it got so – it was like one of the most rented movies ever at one point or something. And I remember um, – my wife and I talked about this when we talked about 1999. Uh, I had seen it not in the theater, but I saw it on video when it first came out and then watched it again after working for real because this came out the spring of my senior year of college. So I thought some scenes were funny. I thought the printer beatdown scene was very, very funny. Didn't really get the humor. I work in an office for about three to six months or so. She works enough. In fact, we watched this the night she quit her first job because she just couldn't take it anymore. She, she ended up getting a new job about a month later. And she was getting like irrationally angry at Bill Lumberg. <laughs> But we were watching this and we've seen it. We've seen it so many times since because it just it's such a good satire. And the scene this is in is um, there's a scene in the for the beginning of the movie where Peter goes Peter, who's played by Ron Livingston, goes to this hypnotist with his girlfriend. And the guy like is trying to hit no, like a psychologist. He's using hypnosis in a group session to like maybe kind of like help him work through the just anger and ennui and everything he hates about his job at Inatech. And Bill Lumberg and all this, just the bullshit he puts up with. 
and the guy like croaks in the middle of the session. He has like a massive heart attack and he's just kind of, he never gets out of the hypnosis and he's kind of like spaced out. He spends the entire weekend afterward, just kind of laying in bed or whatever. And he comes in the next on Monday morning with a drill, not dressed in a shirt and tie. He's wearing like a, like a, a like a, just a, a, a collared shirt that's open. There's a t-shirt under, he's wearing jeans and he comes and he drills. He takes the door out. That's been shocking him. He takes apart his cubicle into the front wall falls over. So he can see the window and the entire time this song is playing. And you've asked anybody about a song in office space. They immediately go to this because it's the thing we all wanted to do. If we ever worked at a cubicle or just an office, just this kind of this like, fuck it you know attitude that we're just kind of like whatever i've i I don't give a shit anymore i'm just gonna come in i'm and i'm gonna leave and and just like you know and i think right after that um lumber comes up to him he's like he just like blows him off it's it's just a great uh and then he has that con- the conference with the, the two consultants, one who's played by John C. McGinley. And it's just, oh, God, I, I, I could go watch this movie right now. But, yeah, this scene is just, you know, like it's 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 a great act of rebellion without actually being like, you know, angry rebellion because it's just very chill. And the song works so well because it's like, you know, it's it's the ghetto boys, yeah. you know, <laughs> they are not like white office workers at some you know like annoyingly big tech company in the late 90s you know so the juxtaposition of that works as well and mike judge really put a good soundtrack together for that movie too he really is phenomenally talented at that type of thing especially like yeah this this is one of the whitest movies you can imagine i think (laughs) given the fact that a character is named michael (laughs) bolton and that becomes a running gag throughout and how much crap they give him about that but there are two great rap songs in this that are used perfectly well. The first one is this one, Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gangster. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Ice Cube song later when they beat the crowd and they kill, they, God, they the murder the, the copy machine. They take it out into a field and bludgeon it to death with a baseball bat. Oh, such a great scene. It's So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I remember, like, uh, as a kid, I liked Beavis and Butthead, so I knew that it was my mm-hmm. judge was this guy created. And then when he started King of the Hill. I, I remember it came out like right around the time of the Simpsons. I was like, Oh yeah, what's his next thing? And I was like, okay, this is not what I was expecting. This is more like a kind of like a serious family thing. And that King of the Hill is now like one of my favorite shows of all time. Like that was just a really, really smart, funny and heartfelt family comedy. Um, and then he moved into this one. I was like, this guy is, this guy is legit. He is like a really talented, like writer and, mm-hmm. and filmmaker. And I love the first couple seasons of, uh, his last show. Um, oh, Silicon Valley. Yeah. yeah, which also has a great use of music at the end of some of those episodes. Um, yeah, and it's just one of those ones that yeah, I was there. Like as soon as like everybody could imagine, like I just everybody could hear this song in their head, and everybody just like walking into work or going to yeah. school or something just had that moment when you just wanted to to be to be in this moment and just tear the walls down yeah, and, exactly. and just feel that. Especially if you grew up just very white and just like, yeah. wanting to just. Yeah. Well, and they picked the 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 better the one of the best parts about it is the way this movie's the settings work is that he is in the most nondescript suburban office park. Yeah. Industrial park complex. He's not in New York City. He's not it's just one of those big huge nondescript office buildings that like dots the landscape somewhere in the burbs. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and, and the restaurant next door is, is, uh, 
tchotchkes, which is basically a TGI Fridays. You know, it's just like we all – it's a lot – so many of us lived or worked some form of that. Even in my former career, lived or worked some form of that and can relate to it. You know, in the same way we can all relate to Clerks or, or Waiting, right. which is another great movie of these sorts of comedies. So, yeah. We all had to wear the flare at some point. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> all right. From there, all right, the next one, uh, to be on brand to the point of almost being obnoxious, <laughs> my next song is from the Batman Forever soundtrack, and the song is Bad Days by the Flaming Lips. You're sort of stuck where you are, but in your dreams you can buy expensive cars, or live on Mars and have it. This selection, I confess, is purely me paying tribute to my guest. Uh, the first time that I ever heard of Tom Paneris, you were the host of Taking Flight, a Robin podcast. Mm. Uh, that was how I, you were on my radar and why I asked you to be on some Secret Origins episodes. So I wanted to honor that occasion by picking a song from Batman Forever, which saw the introduction of Robin into the live-action Batman films, if we're yes. not counting the Burt Ward version. Um, and this is, I, I had the soundtrack. This was a good soundtrack. There were lots of songs on this that I liked. There was uh, the obvious Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which was a huge hit. There was the uh, a great U2 song called Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which yep. had a great badass animated video. Um, there's a Nick Cave song called There Is a Light, and people who listen to Fire and Water Records know how much I like Nick Cave. Mm. But I chose Bad Days by the Flaming Lips, uh, and this was originally from their album Clouds Taste Metallic, which is 1995. I think the same year the movie came out. I always liked the song. I thought it was kind of kooky and entertaining, and in school, I think this would have been, I think, 1996, uh, the summer I was in high school, right before I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends and I went to an outdoor free concert. I think it was free, but we didn't pay for it. Uh, <laughs> but it was an outdoor concert just on like the soccer fields of Northern Illinois University. Um, there were a couple of local bands playing, and they opened up for the Flaming Lips. 
Uh, and at that time, I only knew two songs. I knew She Don't Use Jelly, because that was a hit. I think it was, yeah. I, I think Beavis and Butthead actually did that. So, um, but I saw that on MTV. And, the, and I knew Bad Days from the Batman Forever soundtrack. Uh, and we got there, and this was after, like, we were the youngest people there by far. I mean, this was a concert for, like, on a college campus, on a soccer field, for a bunch of stoners like from from niu but we got there early and we're the youngest kids there uh one of my friends kept disappearing so he could go like get beer or, like you know you know get other guys to buy his beer or something as bring, you do yeah he'd bring the cups back and we'd all chug it um but we got really close to the stage like hmm. we were like kind of like in one corner sort of on the edge of i guess what would have been a mosh pit if it wasn't the flaming lips i mean it wasn't necessarily the type that you moshed to but like some of the opening acts that were a little bit harder rocking um, but I was really close and like, I could like, when the band took the stage, they walked right by me. And at one point, uh, the lead singer, Wayne Cone or coin, uh, he had to come to the corner of the stage to do something with the amp or something like that. And he got like, I could have reached out and touched him. Uh, I didn't. Instead, I just chose, I shouted bad days, play bad days. And he kind of looked at me and gave me a thumbs up and this dorky smile, like, no problem, dude. Of course we will. <laughs> and then I think it was like the fourth song that they played on the concert. So I was nice. like, yeah, nice, nice. I was like, I did nice. that. I got that. <laughs> like, forgetting the fact that it was on the album that just came out. So, of course, they were. it was on their set list. And the postscript to that was, uh, like, later on after that, after the concert, I actually became more of a Flaming Lips fan. I got some of their albums. Uh, and in the early, mid-2000s, they kind of had a resurgence with a couple of really, really good albums that were, like, mm. like Rolling Stone Best of the Year albums. One was the Soft Bulletin. Uh, and then uh, it's a Japanese Toshiro Battles the Pink Elephants. I might be getting the Japanese name wrong, but it's something like that. Mm. Um, so yeah, they, they had good stuff. But I, I liked the song, but I picked it just because it was Batman and Robin, and I thought of you. Nice, thanks. Because uh, this was uh, the Flamingos are kind of a blind spot for me for that era. Although I have this, well, it's 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 my wife's uh, Amanda's CD, but I, I have it. I've I've heard the song before, but it's been, it had been a very long time since I heard it, and I haven't watched Batman in forever and like a decade or so um it's it's been a long time since i watched that but i was i was listening to this i was like oh this is a really good song so uh yeah so i don't have much beyond that i actually had to look up like where is this in the movie i think it's uh, a spotlight on the riddler it's like before jim carrey turns into the riddler i think yeah uh, because thematically it's a nice follow-up to damn it feels good to be a gangster because yeah. there's that lyric and you hate your boss at your job yeah. and in your dreams you can blow his head off yeah yeah, and and um, and I uh, this was the soundtrack that um, I don't know if Batman Returns actually had a pop soundtrack. This was a soundtrack where I think most of the songs actually do appear in the movie in some way. Yet Batman and Robin had that insipid music inspired by yeah, yeah. thing, where it was like uh, this was an inspired inspired shit. We just <laughs> needed somewhere to drop a new version of Foolish Games by Jewel on a on a CD because you know all of that artists uh, happen to be part of the Warner Records. Yeah, we're on. We need somewhere to drop these songs or whatever. And it, uh, that movie's terrible, but um, but yeah, no, this is a, this is a really really good song. So you know, and I. Don't have much to say beyond that, so, but I'm, I'm glad I got to hear it. We'll move on then. What do you got next? I have, you know, I don't know the artist on this, and I apologize. Um, it is from the movie Wet Hot American Summer, and the name of the piece is called Higher and Higher.
so the reason I chose this is I wanted I wanted a training montage song uh, because if there's anything else aside from like in your eyes or whatever that I associate with movies, it's montages. And I know we need a montage was used in I think it was used in Team America before it was used in an episode of South Park, but I always associate with that episode of South Park. And I started thinking of the classics. Now Hearts on Fire by John Cafferty, who I used <laughs> already, um, was in my other episode, it was in my own episode, so I didn't use that. I thought of You're the Best by Joe Bean Esposito from the from the Karate Kid, because you come up on that, it's on cable, you cannot you cannot turn that movie off until Daniel LaRusso kicks Johnny in the face. It's like you hit the tournament, you're in for the rest of the movie. That's it. Uh, it's like it's like coming it's like coming upon Carrie before, when she's about to go to the prom. Like no 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 you cannot turn this movie off until Sissy Spacek completely loses her shit. Um, and so I started walking through like you know uh, just a bunch of other um, things, but then I came to this and. This is a song that's used twice in the movie. The first time is Michael Showalter's character, Boone, gets rejected. It's, if you're unfamiliar with What Hot American Summer out there, it's a parody of 80s movies, especially like it's it's a summer camp movie like Meatballs. And it's this whole and it's done by all the guys who did the 90s MTV sketch comedy show The State. So it's David Wayne, Michael Showalter, Thomas Lennon, uh, Joe Latrulio, uh Ken Michael Marino. Black? Is Michael Ian Black? Michael Ian Black, yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's a bunch of other like really, really famous people and just funny people in it. Amy Poehler is in it. Bradley Cooper is in it. Um, uh, Gene and Garofalo, David Hyde Pierce. It's, it is a phenomenally funny movie. Um, and Christopher Maloney. Christopher Maloney is in this. And Christopher Maloney plays the, the, the mess hall cook named Gene, who is an ex-Vietnam vet because he reminds everybody of it. And there's this whole subplot with him. And at one point, um, Michael Showalter's character of Boone is in love with Katie, who is played by, I don't remember her name, but she is the girl in the Mighty Ducks movie. And um, But at this point, she's about 16, 17. And uh, they make out at one point, but then she rejects him because her ex-boyfriend is played by Paul Rudd, who is, again, awesome in this movie. And, you know, if you have a choice between – I'm a guy and I'd pick Paul Rudd. Um, so, But he wants her back and he's like sobbing over her and he's sitting in front of a, a tree and, and Christopher Maloney just pops up and he's like, you know, you need to learn the new way. And they play this song and it's this training montage of him like he's sitting in a therapy group at one point. He's learning dance moves. He's running around in like really short shorts and high tube socks and it ends with like a Rocky Three-esque like high five. <laughs> and then later on there's a scene where like this weird kid's on like the talent show stage or whatever and there's it's all this wind. It's, it's like – I can, I'm taking too long to explain it. But they play it again and it was used in the sequel series – the prequel series and the sequel series uh, in a, in the prequel series, a memorable scene involving Chris Pine. And it's just, it's, it, it is one of the greatest parodies of a montage song. <laughs> so, and I hear it and it's, it's very early eighties sounding. Cause it's, a, it's an eighties esque camp movie. I think it takes place in like 81 and it's just show me fever, making it higher, taking it higher and higher. And you're like, yeah, like it's, Oh, it's, it's just so freaking brilliant. And this entire movie is, it's just so brilliant. I just, I, I, I love it because it's just absurdly stupid and funny. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, my contribution to the discussion is that uh, the the song is credited to the guys who did the music for the movie, which is Theodore Shapiro and Craig Wedron. 
Uh, that's all I can really say because mm. I haven't seen this movie. I am maintaining my tradition of every every okay. every episode. There's one movie that I haven't seen. Uh, it's this one. I've heard great things about it. At like from the way you describe, it, I was like, yep, yep, that's right up my alley. I need to see this. And I, yeah, because I love the state and I love the people. And you, I actually, I watched the video for where this song appears. And like, as soon as I saw Christopher Maloney, I was like, mm, I'm gonna enjoy this because for that guy who is probably mostly defined by his his appearances in the yeah. Law and Order uh, franchise, he has really like unexplored comedic chops. And I don't think many people know like he's a really great comedian. And just what what I the brief bits that I saw with him in this, I was like, this is great. And just yeah. seeing Michael Showalter running in slow motion with tears in his eyes. Yeah, in the prequel Netflix series that they did, he squares off versus John Hamm, who is another dramatic actor <laughs> who has great comedy yes, chops. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And there, there's on the Wet Hot American Summer DVD, there's a deleted scene where he's doing. They're serving lunch outdoors or whatever, and this girl walks up to him and goes, asks him if this is like vegan corn or something, <laughs> and he's like, "Eat your fucking corn!" And he's like spitting corn out of his mouth. And for the longest time, anytime my wife and I would see him on a show, we'd be like, "Hey, it's eat your fucking corn." <laughs> Nice. All right. All right. You slow it down a little bit. Get a little yeah. more sentimental this time. Uh, slow down. Uh, we're going for a movie and a song. I actually I have to make a little bit of a cheat or put an asterisk next to this one, uh, and I'll explain that after I play it. But the song is Every Time You Go Away by Paul Young from the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Hey, if we can solve any problem. Uh, that I'm mentioning is because the Paul Young version that I think most people have heard is actually originally Paul Hall and Oates did this. They were uh, Daryl Hall wrote the song in 1980, huh. and Paul Young did a cover of it in 1985. Uh, and it was a big hit. I think everybody knows it. Yeah. This is not the version of the song that appears in the movie, however. Uh, and that surprised me when I looked it up because I thought it was. That's I I remembered it. Um, but the end of the movie uses a new version of the, the song that I think was written just for the movie performed by Blue River. I've never heard oh. of them. Yeah. Uh, the director, John Hughes, wanted to use the Paul Young version. Paul Young wanted Hughes to use his version. He, he wanted it to be in the movie. It was only either the record company or the movie studio, and I think it was probably the record company, that interfered and refused to grant permission for the song to be used. I don't know why. Um, so Hughes scrambled and put you know this other version that sounded similar, although it's a female singer. But this is the version I hear in my head 
mm-hmm. for the last 15 or 20 years, whenever I you know saw the movie or something like that, like I hear this song and I think of it, or when I hear this song playing, and it, for some reason the song comes on almost every Thanksgiving, uh, is what I think yeah. I, I tend to hear this song playing. I watch this every playing. Thanksgiving. Yeah, and like, well, I'll be like going like grocery shopping or something, and the song will be playing. <laughs> it will be. Uh, and I hear this song, and I think of the, the, the last five minutes of the movie. I watch it play out when uh, Steve Martin and, and John Candy are walking back to Steve Martin's house, and the door opens, and he says, hey, kiddo, to his daughter, and he's introducing John Candy. And it's the, the movie ends on this heartbreaking moment of John Candy just, like, clutching his hat, and he's heartbroken because he's just had to confess very recently at the end of the movie that his wife has died and she's been dead for a couple of years and it really destroyed his whole life to the point where he he doesn't have a home to use his words yeah, it's kind of a he vagabond yeah he, he basically he's a he's a traveling salesman that doesn't go anywhere else he's just like not like living this nomadic life living out of this trunk and he sees Steve Martin reconnect with his wife. And the whole time, this whole movie, Steve Martin has been trying to get home to his wife. And, and John Candy just has, like, watching them vicariously uh, and, and, like, this smile on his face. And, it, it like, that's the shot it ends on is his smile. And I think of how amazing John Candy was. And, like, for this time of my life, like, it, like seeing him in Splash and then Stripes mm-hmm. and Spaceballs and Uncle Buck and the Great Outdoors and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah. Like, that that selection. I was just, oh, my God, I love this guy so much. And he died. And like, even, even in, like, he has, like, one scene in JFK, which is not a comedic beat or, or, or scene or anything like that. He's playing it straight with a southern accent. And it, you think, like, this guy was so damn talented. And the yeah. fact that he died kind of at the peak of his career Ugh. um it's, but yeah like i like so when i i hear the song at random and i think of that shot and i think of john candy and and i almost start to ball in my car and something like that yeah. uh but it's yeah i i it's a beautiful song and i don't care if this is not the version that's actually in the movie because this is the version that was supposed to be in the movie and it still reminds me of that it tricked me into thinking that this is the version of the movie yeah, and it, John Hughes is another filmmaker. Now, granted, John Hughes's prior career to before filmmaking and writing was um, advertising, mm-hmm. so he knew how to use music in a movie. Um, and we could—I mean, you've already done. Um, don't you forget about me? Right, right. Uh, we could go through. You could do a whole. We could do a whole back and forth on the move, the music from his teen films. But and this is one of the few adult films that he directed. It was like this: she's having a baby, and. Um, there might have been another one. I mean, he wrote a few of them, but like people like Howard Deutsch directed like The Great Outdoors and stuff like that. But um, but this one, it's this comes so close to the line of being schmaltzy and never steps over, and it's amazing how it doesn't. And I think it's because it, a it's earned it by the end of the movie mm-hmm. because you've been with these two guys the entire movie, and and it, I, I, I love this movie. I, I've always love this movie and yeah. and like yeah. you feel for him even the scene like where he's where steve, the hotel room where steve martin's just going you know i've been with tell griffith i can take anything and like you feel so you you were laughing your ass off but 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 at the same time you're feeling terrible for dell yeah john candy because he just he's not he's not that there's no bad guy in this film between the two of them and the look that the, the, I've always wondered about the, the exchange between the two, him and and Neil's wife at the end, where like you know she he's like hello Mrs. Page, she says hello Mr. Griffith. There's something like very knowing about that, and I've always loved the way that scenes played, that exchanges played. Like I don't know, I I, I it, 
I don't know if I overthink it because I've seen it so many times that like, you know, like he brought him home to her and that's so important to the two of them. And it's like something about, you know, you talk about like how he didn't have anything. Um, and, it, but it's almost like she, she, the way she addresses him, it's like she somehow knows, yeah, you know, some, some kind of validation. That, yeah. 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 So it's, it's just, it, it's, you're, you're right. It's just, it's such a beautifully done scene. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, I love it. I just love this movie too. Yeah. It's so. All right. Well, that takes us to our final selection and you promised it was another, it would be a song that ends the movie. So what do you got for us? It, it does. It ends the movie. It ends up one of my all-time favorite movies. It is the song Storybook Love by Willie DeVille from the movie The Princess Bride. Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale Of a boy and girl and their love story And how he loved her oh so much And all the charms she did possess this did happen once upon a time When things were not so complex And how he worshipped the ground she walked And when he looked in her eyes He became obsessed My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel So I had like three or four end credit songs on this list. I had What Does It Take by The Honeymoon Suite from One Crazy Summer, which is probably the most obscure one. <laughs> Maybe the clerk's one is. Um, I had some other ideas. Uh, Dyslexic Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, Can't Help Falling in Love by Lick the Tins from Some Kind of Wonderful. But the reason I chose this is because um, it's often miscredited to Mark Knopfler mm-hmm. uh, because – Mark Knopfler and Willie DeVille. Willie DeVille was just a little bit background on this. I was looking up this guy. I was like, who is this guy? He was the leader of a band called Mink DeVille, which was like a, a proto-punk band back in the 70s, which was one of the house bands at CBGB's for a number of years. I was like, wow. Um, he and Knopfler worked together on, on one of his albums back in the early 80s, like right around the 80s, right around the time The Princess Bride. So Mark Knopfler does the music for the film and this is the only song with lyrics on it in the film everything i have the soundtrack and it's all it's all score right so it's Knopfler's score and 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 so Knopfler, i think helped co-write this or produced it so he was pro- it's a, yeah he was producing willie deville's album at the time yeah and, yeah, and, and worked on the song yeah yeah and it sounds like a mark Knopfler song yeah um so it gets miscredited to him um but what i love about it is that it the song you've heard the song through the entire movie that that is the repeated motif throughout so much of the film and it's the chord progression of this song so you've built up and this is the song that tell it tells the story of the movie so it's a good movie song and we've been hearing it the whole time so it, it is a nice button yeah on the end of it it was nominated for an oscar it didn't win um that was the year i believe i've had the time of my life from dirty dancing won best um song which 
I like this better than that, but I can totally see why that one right, right. an Oscar um, because that because that movie, geez. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just it's 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 this it's a it's a beautiful song. It's it's on the end of like what is one of the most perfect movies out there, and um, and I will never like never stop liking this film or this or the song. I was so happy when I saw this song <laughs> on your list because. I love it for all the reasons that you say, and I realize that I never would have included this because I'd completely forgotten about it. Like, I have got a huge list uh, of songs and, and, like, movies that I want to, like, feature on this show at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And this just this fell through the cracks. Like, I never would have remembered this or even thought about this. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah. That, I, I, actually, I, I, I looked at your list by Willie DeVille. I was like, I think that's a Mark Knopfler song. I might have to correct Tom and that. And then I had to look it up. I was like, oh, yeah, Mark Knopfler did the music and he produced it, but it wasn't him singing. He didn't write the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah, it was, it's the exact same thing. You're right. Like the way that the song integrates the music, the melody throughout the movie and everything and kind of like closes with that. And it's, it's just a, it's a very kind of, it's a beautiful written song that can exist on its own, but it's also so poignant for the, the story and the movie that we've been experiencing throughout there. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that it's called storybook love and and just the that whole refrain and without being overly literary just kind of like feeling like this is a something of a past time period where you're you're mm-hmm. there's almost a fable quality to yeah. the songwriting here uh and just a sense of like whimsy and fun and 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 beauty and romance that you get from the melody um and, and yeah, and I love it. And, and Mark Knopfler is one of my favorite musicians too. So I like love Dire Straits and I love his his work. So I think his contribution to this is definitely is definitely something worth noting. But uh, yeah. yeah, Willie Deville's his lyrics, the yeah the the way he wrote the song is really really phenomenal. It's very pure too, yes, and authentic. Yeah. It's it's and 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 I'm just thinking I'm running through my head as you were talking. Like Rob Reiner, who directed this film, mm-hmm. he like this is like the third in a string of movies. Now they didn't all like were not all phenomenal, but you had like spinal, this is spinal tap. Of course, the sure thing, which um, I think gets forgotten in the great John Cusack filmography, but Mm -hmm. is like one of my favorite movies. This, um, when Harry met Sally, and I think a few good men comes after that. And that's like five movies in a row that it's like, you know, I mean, he, uh, and then you have North. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, Rob Reiner has almost as many turkeys as he has great ones. Which oh is yeah, why yeah. I don't think I don't think anybody will ever put him on that list. But his great movies and movies that are very diverse in tone and everything. Mm-hmm. The one movie that you didn't mention that is one of my top fives is Stand by Me. Oh, that's right, Stand by Me. And I, that was a, that was. Um, a, why did I forget Stand by Me? I love Stand by yeah, Me. Yeah, you. That was another soundtrack my parents had. Yeah. That I used to steal all the time. Yeah. <laughs> You know, let's talk about that. No, yeah. So, yeah, Stand By Me. So, yeah, you've got, like, he had a streak, and then the streak got broken, and, like, he, there was a point in his career. Cameron Crowe was kind of the same way, where, like, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of never really recovered from, like, a, a turkey or two. But, right. um, but yeah, but, yeah, this song just, it, it just, it it is just a little moment of perfection that, yeah, at the end of a movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to close this out. So it is. Tom, thank you very much for being on this episode of uh, Fire and Water Records and Soundtrack Series. I had a ton of fun revisiting some of these songs and listening to them. This, yeah, this is uh, so much fun to go through these and talk about them. 
I uh, love geeking out about music and stuff like this in general. So um, I this was a real treat for me. I would love to do it again. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I didn't have to, try to, to twist your <laughs> arm. Twist my arm now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, and I'm sure I will have you back on a future episode. Um, yeah. Until then, where else can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you? Um, I have uh, a couple of shows over at the Two True Freaks uh, Internet Radio Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Um, one of them is Required Reading with Tom and Stella, where Stella of Batgirl's Oracle fame and I take a look at a work of literature every episode. And then I have Pop Culture Affidavit. Uh, that is random stuff in the world of popular culture. So it's comics, it's music, it's movies, it's TV and stuff. Um, as of this recording, I my most recent episodes will have been uh, a episode about Fox reality television shows that I've done with my wife, and then uh, my part of the J.L. May crossover. I'm talking about the Return of Donna Troy miniseries from the mid-2000s. Um, I also have a miniseries among that show. I do all these miniseries with that, and I that's going on. It's going to be going on until the end of night of uh, 2021 called Fallen Walls Open Curtains where I'm taking a look at the Cold War in popular culture uh, as it cor- and corresponding to also the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union and, and communism in Eastern Europe and you can find that at uh, popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com and you can find me at t- on Twitter at popaff that's P-O-P-A-F-F I am assuming that your Cold War miniseries show will culminate in an entire episode dedicated to Rocky IV, which uh, also Rocky, had a pretty damn good soundtrack. Rocky IV and Red Dawn. <laughs> Wolverines! Those the are the that movies the that brought War. down the Soviet Union. Yeah, exactly. Okay, listeners, Fire & Water Records is a proud part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support the show by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever you download these shows, and leave us a nice five-star review. Every review for Fire and Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Thank you.